David? There we are. Good morning, everyone. And welcome on this beautiful Sunday morning. Yes, I'm up here as opposed to down there because um, we have some unfinished business in 1 Corinthians 14. Do you remember? I explained this a few weeks ago that we were going to take a couple of Sunday mornings in the adult Sunday school class to look at a couple of controversial issues in 1 Corinthians 14, this being, I believe anyway, a better context in which to deal with these things as opposed to Sunday morning worship. And so two Sundays ago, we looked at the gift of tongues. Last Sunday was Easter, so there was no adult Sunday school. And today we're going to return to 1 Corinthians 14 to look at the role of women. Next week, Lord willing, I'll be back down there and we will return to the book of Genesis and finish up our our study of that very important book. So I know this has been a little, I don't know, is confusing the right word? I don't know if it's been confusing, but certainly it's put us off balance a little bit, but um, I don't know how how else we could have done this. And uh, maybe there was a better way, but this is the way we settled on. And I trust the Lord will bless it to us. And so turn with me, if you're not there already, to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 14, as I read just a couple of verses, beginning in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. There you have it. It is, yes, something of a controversial passage of scripture. Lots of ink has been spilt, expounding these verses, or dare I say, pontificating on these verses. And uh, that's going to continue until the Lord comes, undoubtedly. Uh, So what I want to try to do, basically three things. The third thing, the last thing we're going to do is actually get to the verses and consider what it is Paul is saying and isn't saying. That's the third thing we're going to do. I want to do a couple of things initially just to set this theme in in a larger context and um, so that we're clear on on what has happened, what's going on, why this is so controversial and problematic and why it's likely to get far worse before it gets better. Okay? And so points one, two, and then three will get us back to the text. And so points one and two, I want to differentiate between a couple of things. Um, And so here we're getting into, you know, broader subject, broader themes and dealing with bigger issues. But I think important for when we get down to the detail of this chapter so that we have a, just a a biblical, make sure we have a biblical worldview in place. 
And so the first thing I want to discuss briefly is this, and, and that I want to make clear is there is a difference. We need to be clear on this between the suffrage movement and the feminist movement. They are not the same thing. Okay, so the two are basically, they become one in a lot of people's thinking today. But historically, that, that's inaccurate. They are actually two very different movements. The suffrage movement and the feminist movement. When we think of the suffrage movement, um, we're referring, of course, to women's struggle for equal rights, and in particular, uh, the right to vote. That was a principal beef, if you like, going all the way back really to the 1800s. Uh, the movement began early 1800s, ended really in the early 1900s. Uh, women gained the right to vote in New Zealand in 1893, Canada in 1918, the United States 1920, Britain uh, 1928. Uh, the Declaration of Independence of our country states, all men are created equal. But in 1776, all men did not include African Americans, nor did it include women. And so these were changes, amendments made to the Constitution, healthy, good things, and a, a good movement, the suffrage movement, a, a good thing overall, in which um, basically women uh, became legal adult entities. You weren't before 1928. You weren't adult legal entities. And so we would look at the suffrage movement and we would think, well, there's a very good thing. There is, uh, I think, the influence of God's word, the influence of, of Christianity over a long period of time and the influence upon the culture. And although it wasn't uh, an easy thing, decisions that were finally made, and we would look at that in a very positive light. Now, I would differentiate then the suffrage movement from the feminist movement, which really doesn't begin until the 1960s. They are different historical movements with basically different foundations. To a large degree, the suffrage movement is rooted in a biblical worldview, right? And it is this country and this country in particular wrestling with its own constitution or declaration of independence. All men are created equal. What exactly does that mean? And who are all men? So a good thing. Feminist movement in 1960s and as it continues today um, is based on a different worldview. A basic set of presuppositions or assumptions rather and actually has a very different aim or agenda. And so if you look, it was a feminine mystique. I can't remember who wrote that, but uh, that was a, a popular book some years ago now, just kind of representing and articulating this movement as a whole. I do acknowledge that even within feminism, you might have more conservative versus radical. Yes, I acknowledge that. It's a broad spectrum. But broadly speaking, the movement, when we boil it all down, two things that we need to be very clear on. The first is this. What does the movement, broadly speaking, actually believe, actually believe. And at its core, here is the fundamental presupposition. It is this. Men and women are exactly the same. That's the presupposition. That was never the presupposition of the suffrage movement. That's not what they were arguing for. Men and women are the same. 
no ontological difference or difference in roles or functions. No, that was a struggle for equal rights and being recognized as legal adult entities. But with the feminist movement, the basic sort of impetus is this idea that gender roles, distinctions, and capacities are all social constructs. So they don't really exist. They're simply the fruit of society and what society imposes upon men and women. They're the result of socialization, upbringing. If we were to raise boys and girls in exactly the same way, they would develop identically. That is the conviction of this movement. So that is what they believe. What does it want? Feminism. Again, maybe not so much on the moderate side, but certainly... Broadly speaking, this is representative of the movement. Feminism seeks an egalitarian, unisexual world. It wants to end what it describes as patriarchy, male dominance in society. And they see the solution as overcoming the need to overcome all gender distinctions. And so we are now living in a day in which feminism and this basic belief system and this basic goal is um, part and parcel of popular culture and popular thinking. It is simply assumed by, by many in our own day. It has actually become something, and this is what makes it increasingly complex and a... Uh, I was going to say sticky wicket, but that doesn't, that's culturally inappropriate. Um, uh, Something complex that just gets really confusing is that it is now part of this whole movement of um, identity politics, right? And so we are now living in in a day um, where identity politics is to a great extent the basic worldview paradigm in which people view things. They view society. In this sort of philosophy worldview, the basic assumption is this, that society always exists of the oppressed and the oppressors. It's just the way it is. You have the oppressed and the oppressors. And so it is for the oppressed to identify as oppressed, identify their oppressors and then this becomes political because their entire political persuasion then goal is what what they perceive to be their rights and so in in our day and this is why it is so complex i'll get back to this in just a moment it is so complex because in many people's thinking today as they look at society they see it through this lens oppressed oppressor poor Rich, the 1%. Remember that whole thing a few years ago. So that's one category. Poor, rich. I'm poor because of the rich. That's why. I am part of the oppressed. This is identity politics. Male, female. And so patriarchy, patriarchy, patriarchy. That uh, I am a woman. I'm oppressed. I've had it bad. And the reason is because society exists Oppressed, oppressors, I'm here. Males constitute then this patriarchy and therefore the need to identify politically 
and through a political agenda, seek to uh, accomplish, achieve what I perceive to be my rights. We see it between white, black, Caucasian, African-American. We see it between uh, legals and illegals, right? That entire dichotomy. We see it between heterosexual and homosexual. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on today. We live in a society that is completely, has been completely overrun with identity politics. Why it gets confusing is this, is that in a lot of those things, there is oppression. There have been wrongs, some serious wrongs. And there still are some serious wrongs being perpetuated. Racism is still a problem. Uh, some men uh, think far more highly of themselves than they ought to and have abused women. That's a reality. Some f- rich are completely self-absorbed and take advantage of workers here, there, or everywhere. These are problems. And these are specific problems that should be identified and addressed. But that's not, ju- that's not identity politics. And identity politics is just this basic presupposition that I need to self-identify in my victimhood. I'm oppressed and I need to identify an oppressor and then I get my political group together and I seek to influence the powers that be to uh, get my piece of the pie or what I perceive to be my rights and my in- entitlement. So that's where we're at. That, that's why, the, the, you know, just the news and just the talking heads and all the stuff you're hearing, why it is just so mind-numbing and confusing because while there are problems and issues and injustices that need to be addressed, uh, it has now been hijacked by an entire philosophy, worldview, and way of thinking that has become completely unhealthy and and is actually ultimately detrimental because Scripture actually never identifies us as victims, right? Scripture identifies us as what? rebels above all else. And so it actually can become detrimental to the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel because these things can then become part and parcel of what the gospel message is, right? The the attainment of my rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, through political means. And however needful, yes, speaking to some of these issues is, it can quickly morph into something unhealthy that actually undermines the central tenets of the gospel and of the Christian faith. So the entire feminist movement fits into that and it plays well in terms of identity politics. And so we need to be aware of that in our day because it's only going to get worse. Well, what do I know? Unless there's divine intervention, it's only going to get worse. This is the, these are the train tracks we are on as a society. And, um, and you'll see each political party then, how far are we away from an election? Year and a half. So it's starting now, uh, identity politics, they will start to champion all these injustices and seek to identify with these groups and seek to identify and name the oppressors, and it is all political. It is simply to get what? Political support and and votes. And that's the way we function right now, and um, well, that's that. But you then come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and you read something like, uh, well, women should be in submission. And a lot of people, they just choke on that. Absolutely gag 
on that because it is now understood and perceived through society's lens. And there is not the men, not even the beginnings, not even the beginnings of a mental framework to wrestle with what the word of God is saying, what the apostle Paul is saying here. And it becomes extremely difficult. And as the people of God, as the church of God, if our desire is to have a voice in public office, if our desire is to have a voice in the culture, if that is our goal, we will compromise on an issue like this. Right? We will, we will compromise. And on a lot of other issues. Because it is completely unpopular and unacceptable. So that's the first distinction, differentiation I want to make. The second is this. We need to be clear on the difference between egalitarianism and complementarianism. All right, have you heard those words? Isms. Yeah, most of you. We need to be clear on this. Complementarianism and egalitarianism. And let me boil it all down to six slides. Okay? And uh, I think this will help explain it. Egalitarianism, sort of the root of our word, Equality, right? Equal, egalitarianism. Complementarianism, to complement something. So that's starting to give you an idea of what the debate or the issue is here. And so let me break down this distinction. Break it down because, you know, whereas that whole difference between the suffrage movement and the feminist movement, we might still here in Glen Rose, Texas, kind of look at that and say, well, that's way out there. Although it isn't really, as far as the larger society is concerned, with this debate, we come much closer to home, even within the ranks of evangelicalism. And this divide that exists between egalitarianism and complementarianism. So those who are egalitarians, all right, they would affirm ontological equality between men and women. So we are equal in being. I'd agree with that. God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 made us, male and female, in his image. Male and female. Ontological equality. Equal in terms of our being, our essence. Therefore, equal in terms of our value and equal in our worth. They would then affirm functional equality. So not just equality in terms of who we are as individuals, as beings, but equality in terms of what we do the functions we perform without any distinctions. So there are not some functions for which God created males versus some functions or roles or responsibilities for which God created females. Those do not exist. That is the egalitarian position. Ontological equality, functional equality without distinctions. Make sense? All right. Thank you, Regina. Complementarianism. Yes, we affirm as well ontological equality. I would take serious issue with anyone here or anywhere else who said, well, no, actually, women are inferior to men. Uh, that is a view that we do see at certain points in, uh, in humanity's history. It certainly was a point of contention when it comes to the suffrage movement because it was thought by many that women shouldn't be voting. Why? They weren't necessarily the most rational beings. I'm sorry how offensive that is, but that was the thinking of many not that long ago. We're just talking 100 years ago. Uh, but we affirm, no, ontological equality, male and female. God created us in his image. We also affirm functional equality. 
That is what we do and what we contribute in the home and in society and the church at work. It is of equal value in the sight of God. But the difference, it's subtle, but do you see it? With distinctions. That there are distinctions. When it comes to those functions, those roles, those responsibilities, God has made, fashioned, and equipped men to perform certain roles and responsibilities and functions. And he has fashioned, created, formed, and equipped and called women to perform certain functions and roles and responsibilities. So while there might be a distinction, they are of equal value in the sight of God. There's the basic fundamental difference then between egalitarianism and complementarianism. You're getting it. Egalitarianism. How would they argue their position? They would say, look, when we go back into Genesis 1, the creation narrative, distinctions do not exist in paradise. Yes, biological distinctions, but in terms of function, there are no roles and responsibilities given exclusively to Adam or given exclusively to Eve in paradise. Complementarianism, uh, they would disagree and they would say, hold on a second. No, there are distinctions in paradise. We'll come back to this. For example, Eve was created to be a, a helper. That was prior to the fall. So this is a point of contention as they develop their arguments. In paradise, for an egalitarian, no differences in roles or, dis- or, or responsibilities. For complementarians, they say, no, 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 no. That's the whole issue. Prior to the fall in creation, there God did ordain, implement, and bless role distinctions. Building on that, egalitarians would say these distinctions are a result of the fall. And so the reason you have male headship isn't because that's the way God designed it in paradise. Male headship is a consequence of the fall. Patriarchy. So it's sin. It's sinful. The fact that we even talk in terms of head and body or in terms of, um, you know, head or even use that word authority and submission. The fact that we even have those categories and use that language that wouldn't even exist apart from the fall. Complementarians say, no, 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 that's not true. It's prior to the fall that headship is established. It's prior to the fall that we have these principles of authority and submission. What happens at the fall is that those distinctions are completely twisted, disrupted, skewed. And that's why you have problems in this relationship. You have men who don't understand what it means to be ahead or what it means to exercise authority. You have women who don't understand what it means to submit. And you have both, you know, forfeiting their role, their responsibility. You have both maybe wanting to do what the other is doing. You have both ignoring what they've been equipped, called, and designed to do. That is what has created the problems. Not headship itself. Not this relationship of authority and submission itself. But how it has now been distorted and twisted and skewed because of sin's entrance into the world. Are you tracking it then, this difference? Egalitarians would then say, look, these distinctions are removed in Christ. So trace it historically. Prior to the fall, no distinctions at all. Because of the fall, 
distinctions, this idea of headship, this idea of authority and submission. But by virtue of redemption, when we're brought into Christ, there is, they would appeal to Galatians 3.28, now neither male nor female in the body of Christ. Those distinctions, those roles, responsibilities, whatever, that talk of headship, it no longer even exists. Complementarians would say, well, no, 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 no. The distinctions are biblical. The distinctions are God's design. The roles and responsibilities and this idea of headship, they're all instituted prior to the fall. True, because of the fall, they're completely thrown out of whack. And we've all sorts of distortion and all sorts of abuse. That's right. But here's the wonderful thing. By virtue of redemption in Christ, those distinctions are restored. Their proper function. Because that relationship is brought under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, the governance of God's word. Therefore, that couple fulfills what was the original design in accordance with God's word. So two very different views on this entire subject. Egalitarianism and complementarianism. Much of the debate then is paradise. Is it there or isn't it there? And we shift to Genesis 2 for this debate. And I think it clearly is there. And it's seen in four ways. One, Adam was created first. The narrative makes it clear. He was created first. And Eve was created second. Secondly, it was Adam and Adam alone who received God's command concerning the tree. Not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think most significantly is this. It was Adam who required a helper. God saw there was no helpmate suitable for him. Caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, removed the rib, fashioned Eve, brought her to him, whereby they became one flesh, and she became his helper. And it was Adam himself who named Eve. All of this is before the fall. And all of it clearly points to what? What we know as the biblical doctrine of headship. That yes, there is ontological equality. Both are created in the image of God, of equal value and worth. Yes, there is functional equality. Whatever roles and responsibilities God has given to them, they are of equal value and importance. But there are distinctions in those roles and responsibilities. Whereby when we come to the New Testament, we certainly discover that Paul sees Genesis 2 as the foundation for headship. And so headship is not a consequence of the fall. Headship is not a social construct. No, headship is a biblical truth established, ordained, uh, right there in paradise at the time of creation. And so that is the debate then between egalitarians and complementarians that takes place even within evangelical circles. And so it would lead egalitarians to reject any notion of headship, distinct roles and responsibilities for men and women when it comes to the home and when it comes to the local church. And so in the home, that therefore means that there is no, there is no head. Uh, Ephesians 5, this idea that women are, wives are to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord, and that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, that doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Clearly can't, because that whole type of relationship doesn't exist. It was a consequence of the fall. It also means, therefore, for egalitarians, when it comes to the local church, the office of elder, 
is open to women. And women can even be ordained and preach. And we, will, and we see that. We certainly saw that in the 80s, the 90s, in what we'd identify as more liberal churches. But we are seeing it uh, today even in churches that would have historically identified as being e evangelical conservatives. So that's the debate. You got it. The debate between the suffrage movement and the feminist movement, that is a societal debate, debate which just, it, it gets ugly. You know it as well as I do. You cannot watch the news without entering into that societal debate of, gen, of, of, of identity politics. It is the basic operating system of our entire political structure and media, news media in our day. It is sickening. It is annoying. But that is the reality in which we live. And we probably need to wise up to it and understand, and, oh, and the wisdom, the wisdom that is required, therefore, to be able to look into it and say, well, you know, that, that, that there is wrong. That there is a problem. That there is an injustice without being sucked into the entire worldview known as gender uh, identity politics and all that comes along with it today, which is, will ultimately, in the final analysis, cloud and corrupt the proclamation of the gospel. So we need to have this, this societal framework and we need this ecclesiastical framework, even among evangelicals today, and be clear on this distinction between egalitarianism and complementarianism. Okay? That was number one. And that was number two. Guess what? We're finally ready for number three. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And no, now just to put it to rest right now, no, I'm not going to open this up for questions. All right? Here we go. <laughs> Actually, I will just I'll refer you to any of the other elders for questions. All right. I see Ike over here and Cody's back there somewhere. So feel free. Have at it. First Corinthians chapter 14. With all that context set then. What does Paul say? Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you, namely what I've, you know, the whole letter, but specifically what I just said, let's not, I mean, I just said it, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Okay, so why is this so difficult? It's difficult. The text itself, what does this mean? You know, be silent. Sisters, keep silent. Here we are, Sunday morning. I want to hear a peep out of you. Not a, not a beep. Is that what Paul's saying? What's going on here? And it, it becomes even more difficult when you flip back, go back to chapter 11. Um, verse two, you know, Paul says there, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them unto you. And then he gets into this whole question of headship. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies, prays or prophesies. It's verbal. People can hear men when they do that. With his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, 
dishonors her head. The assumption there in 1 Corinthians 11 is what? Then the gathering of the local church, what are women doing? Well, they're not keeping silent. They're actually praying and prophesying. And Paul acknowledges it, and evidently he doesn't have any problem with it. But then we come to chapter 14, and he says, nope, not a peep. Nope, don't want to hear anything. You are not permitted to speak. Uh, you must keep silent in the churches. So how do we, what is he saying in chapter 14? And how do we reconcile these two passages of scriptures? Let me give you six suggestions, which are all wrong. And then uh, I'll point you on the straight and narrow. Okay. Six suggestions, which are out there. If you pick up a commentary, I don't depend on who wrote the commentary. You might stumble upon these. Okay. Number one, here's how we uh, explain this. Uh, Paul didn't write these verses. That's how we resolve it. He didn't write. Chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, they're not his. It was inserted, later date, some scribe, some crazy man, patriarchy, who had it in for women, right? Um, just jotted it down there in the margin. And as this got transcribed and copied, it got inserted. And we're so far removed now that, um, well, what can we do? But uh, understand it's not part of the original letter and it is not part of God's word. Okay, so we reject that. Okay, we just outright reject it. Um, it lacks any serious textual support. Moreover, it just, it quite, not even subtly, not so subtly, blatantly, it undermines the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And, you, and you'll get that out there when people don't necessarily agree with something in Scripture. Well, maybe it's not part of the Bible or, or something you w will hear when it comes to this debate. I've heard it a number of times is this. Well, that's what Paul says. But Jesus never said that. And people will almost make these two antithetical. As if you have the teaching of Jesus. And then you have this sub-teaching of the Apostle Paul. Whom we shouldn't take so seriously. I'm a red-letter Christian. Have you ever met those red-letter Christians? Hope there aren't any here. Watch out for them. Red-letter Christians. Because uh, guess what? From Genesis right through to Revelation, it's, it's all Christ's words. If you got one of those Bibles with red letters in it, well, it's okay. But just <laughs> realize they shouldn't be in red. It, it's all Jesus' words, the whole book. But people will create this false, this antithesis then uh, between what Jesus said and what Paul said. Well, we can dismiss Paul because, well, he's not Jesus, right? So he didn't write these words. That's one view, one suggestion. Here's number two. Paul is inconsistent. So he's just not a very smart man. He said something in chapter 11, maybe put down his feather or told the scribe who was writing the letter to take a break, took a few days off, came back, kind of forgot what he'd said, got to chapter 14 and said something that then contradicts what he had said in chapter 11. Well, we reject that as well, obviously, uh, because it is to disregard one of the two texts as being the inspired word of God. It sets the interpreter above scripture, which we must never, ever do. Here's the third suggestion. Uh, Paul's command is an antiquated cultural expression. And so we reject this suggestion. 
I mean, while there are certainly cultural factors unique to Paul's day, uh, he doesn't appeal to any of these in this letter. You know, this, this is a difficult one because, you know, for example, Paul will um, say, greet one another with a holy kiss. All right? Well, that's not happening here, folks. <laughs> greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a command. It's in the Bible. Why don't we do that? Well, we would respond because that was a cultural expression appropriate in that day for greeting. Uh, they wouldn't have known what a handshake, that would have been odd in their day. But in our day, well, it sort of conveys the same thing. A nice, not one of those kind of, I don't know, liquidy handshakes, but a nice firm, solid handshake, maybe a pat on the back. It conveys this greeting, this conveys this idea of brotherly love. So we do need to be cautious there. But this idea, whenever we come across something in the Bible that we don't like, well, it was cultural. That, that becomes problematic, especially in this case, because Paul, back in chapter 11, has introduced the whole subject of headship. He's taken us back to Genesis 2. For example, in 1 Timothy 2, where he's going to say that I do not permit women to teach in the church or exercise authority over a man, he's going to root that in what? Not cultural practice, but he's going to go all the way back to the order of creation, Genesis 2. And so he is going to argue on the base of history. He's going to argue on the base of theology. So for someone to come merrily along and say, well, that's just cultural, you can't do that because that is not to take the Apostle Paul himself seriously because he gives his own reasons for these commands. So, so we reject this idea, number three. Number four, Paul describes two different meetings, formal and informal. So in chapter 11, you have an informal meeting of just a few people who happen to get together and in that context, you know, women can pray and prophesy audibly. But in chapter 14, you have an actual recognized Sunday morning worship hour with all its formality and everything else and liturgy. Well, in that context, it's completely unacceptable for women to, to speak verbally, audibly, to be heard. And so some would reconcile these two texts in that manner. We reject this suggestion simply because... I think it's just a product of man's imagination. The New Testament never envisions two different kinds of meetings. It never even hints at such a notion. And so that's taking something and reading it into the text in order to bring these two passages together. Number five, Paul distinguishes between single women and married women, not single woman, single women and married women. And so in chapter 11, he has single women in mind. They can participate. But in chapter 14, he has married women in mind, in view. They now have a husband who will participate publicly for them, and therefore they should keep silent. Well, we reject that one as well, because if you go back and ch read chapter 11, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is speaking primarily to wives there as well. Um, so it, it just doesn't really hold water. So lastly, number six, you keeping up? Whoops, Paul speaks of silent prayer and audible prayer. So in chapter 11, whatever this praying and prophesying, whatever they are, it's silent. Which should immediately strike you as odd, right? Well, then what, prophecy, what purpose does it, if it's silent? But then when you come to chapter 14, um, it's audible. So he permits the silent participation, but not the audible and that too is self-contradictory. We reject this suggestion in chapter 11. Praying is coupled with prophesying. Both are audible. 
Even if Paul is speaking of silent prayer in chapter 11, the apparent contradiction still exists. He acknowledges that women prophesy. Whereas in chapter 14, he commands women to be silent. So there are six theories, suggestions, I think wholly inadequate. And so how do we reconcile these two texts? All right. The place to begin is with this, the context. And if you can think back to a few Sundays ago, when we dealt with chapter 14 in its entirety, if you can remember that, you will recall that Paul's main concern in that chapter is what? Disorder. It's chaos. Yeah, if they're just running amok in their Sunday morning worship service, and it's not edifying. And because it's not edifying, therefore it's not an expression of love. And he is seeking to bring some decency, some order, some structure uh, to their Sunday morning worship services. And so that is the main theme. He is chiefly concerned with disorder in public worship. This becomes very apparent in this section, because look at what he says in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up, for edification. And then in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. So again, you've heard, you've heard me use that expression before, an inclusion. It's very important in scripture. Paul especially uses it a lot, a phrase to begin a thought, a same phrase to end it, indicating that everything in between is, is related. And so again, let all things be done for building up. All things should be done decently, in order, orderly, decently, and in an edifying fashion. And so in between, what does he do? He speaks to abuses related to tongues, verses 27 and 28. And this is important here, abuses related to prophecy in verses 29 through 35. And then he gives this, the warning in verse 36 through 39, that his instructions are from God. So abuses dealing with the public use of the gift of tongues, verses 27 and 28. Abuses dealing with the public exercise of the gift of prophecy in verses 29 through 35. So the context actually goes back to verse 29, where he says what? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So he's called for what? Order. And this is what it should look like, order. Uh, you only have two or three at the maximum prophets speak and everyone else, um, whatever their gift is, their role in the church, they are to judge. Uh, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, we'll let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And you need self-control because the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. I think in the context, Paul is still dealing with the abuse of the gift of prophecy. He is still expanding on that initial command back in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And now here's what I want to make clear when it comes to weighing what is said. Sisters, you have no role, nor responsibility in that. You are to keep silent. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, the law, there's no command that actually says women should be in submission in a church gathering in the Old Testament. By the law, I think he means Genesis 2. 
He's going all the way back to the order of creation and headship. And he brings it home then in verse 35. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. And so Paul's command is set in a very specific context. In that context, what can we affirm? Three things. You're wishing you had a handout right about now, aren't you? And I'm wishing right about now I had provided a handout. But you can email me. I am happy to send you my notes if you'd like them. Feel free to do that. Here's the first implication. The first thing we can affirm based on these verses. Paul commands silence. And this silence has to do with certain situations. The verb remain silent is not intended in an absolute sense. How do we know that? Because look at how it builds the argument. Verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent. What does that mean? I can no longer say anything? I can no longer utter a word? I'm not even supposed to sing? I can't pray? No, he doesn't mean there keep silent in an absolute sense. He means keep silent. Don't exercise the gift of prophecy uh, right now because we only want two or three and you are, you know, if one is prophesying and another prophesies, the first in verse 30 should keep silent. It's not meant in an absolute sense. So that means I have to be silent for the rest of the meeting. I can't pray. I can't do anything. I can't talk to the person sitting beside me. And so Paul uses the command, keep silent, be silent twice prior to verse 34. And in neither of those instances does he mean it in an absolute sense. It refers to something very specific. I think just for the consistency's sake, when we come to verse 34, it's the same thing. It's not a general absolute. It is a command with a very specific intent. The women should keep silent in the churches and silent as it relates still to the orderly, uh, decent, and um, edifying use of this gift of prophecy, whereby only two or three should speak and others should weigh what is said. Uh, the second thing we can affirm, Paul's command implies an activity related to a lack of submission. That becomes clear in verses 34 and 35. They are not permitted to speak, whatever that speaking is, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. The kind of speaking, here it is just a summary. The kind of speaking that Paul had in mind indicated a lack of submission on the part of the woman speaking. Whatever the precise situation, he views it as a departure from a woman's submission to her husband. He has unpacked this idea of submission back in chapter 11. Headship is by God's design and headship is for God's glory. And on the basis of headship, he has established that there are specific functional roles and distinctions between men and women. God has instituted a divine order. Therefore, the relationship between man and woman, husband and wife is not cultural. It is part of God's divine design. 
And that means that men and women have different roles and responsibilities within the home and within the church. These differences aren't accidental. They are not social constructs. They are creational and fundamental. And those who blur these differences and distinctions undermine God's design. And evidently, this is what was happening in the context of the exercise of this gift of prophesying, whereby this service was just becoming absolute bedlam, that it seems not only were a bunch of people standing up and speaking in foreign languages all at once, and no one was interpreting, but then you have a bunch of people standing up and prophesying. So you've got all these languages over here. You've got people standing up here with the word of the Lord. And you've got people who are trying to discern and differentiate. And on top of that, you've got women. Uh, whether they're speaking in tongues or prophesying isn't really the issue. It's this. Uh, they're daring to now actually act as judge on those who are participating. Uh, they have assumed a position of authority. And they are exercising a role that um, God never designed. And that scripture never envisions. And I think this command, therefore, to remain silent, to be silent, uh, needs to be understood then in that ecclesiastical context. I think it relates very well with what he says in 1 Timothy 2 so clearly that a woman is not to exercise authority over a man. And so back to 1 Corinthians, sister, when your husband stands up and uh, he prophesies, you know, it's not really your place to say, well, that's a bunch of nonsense. It's completely inappropriate. Don't act like that. You're, you're making a public spectacle of him and demeaning him publicly. Don't do that. Or some over here, are, they're prophesying this, and she's saying that, and there's a disagreement, and you stand up now as judge. Well, that's not your role either. You've got elders in the church for that. And so he seems to be concerned with this principle, biblical design and principle of headship, how it plays out in the context of a local church and safeguarding this role of authority and submission, especially when it comes to how it is practiced in local church gatherings and where this authority ultimately lies. The differences between men and women, again, they are not accidental. They are not social constructs. They are creational and fundamental. Whatever might happen in the world, these differences and distinctions are not to be blurred in the church. The third thing I think we can affirm is this. I've already appealed to it. Paul's command applies to the judgment of the prophets. He appeals to the law, nomos, I think simply the scripture. In 1 Corinthians 11, he makes an appeal to the beginning. He does the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So for his argument in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, you know, in the beginning... 1 Corinthians 2, in the beginning, he's going back to the creation narrative. I think he's got the same thing in view here in chapter 14, the law in the beginning. Go all the way back, Genesis 2 in particular. And so he has this divine order in mind, in view, established by God in paradise. And he is sending a clear message to sisters in the church at Corinth. They must not do or say anything that demonstrates a lack of submission to their husband. They should not usurp their authority. They should not belittle them publicly. They should not assume a role that was not given to them. Uh, they should not exercise that kind of authority in the local gathering, public gathering of the church. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. Verse 29. 
The word judge could be translated discriminate. Discriminate in a good sense of the word. To discriminate between truth and error, good and bad. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge, discriminate. Usually this verb is used to make a distinction among people. To discriminate between him and him, her and her. The judgment therefore to be made in verse 29, yes, it pertains to what is said, but even more significantly, it is not merely about the words being spoken, but the people who are speaking. And Paul is saying, sisters, that's not a role for you. That is not a role for you. That would be to usurp that divine order established in the law at creation of exercising authority in the context of the local church, which um, isn't your role, your function, your responsibility. Therefore, you keep silent in that regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 34 and 35. All right. If you do have questions on that, feel free to ask them. <laughs> I, can't, I can't guarantee, you know, if you send me an email, I can't guarantee the answer will be that satisfying because to be honest, I've said just about everything I got. To, I've, I've given you just about everything I got on this subject and uh, how I've wrestled with it over the years. Uh, seeking to be faithful to the text itself in its context, balancing it then with 1 Corinthians 11, that the issue isn't speaking, praying, prophesying. No, it is a specific exercising of authority when it comes to discerning among people, uh, almost the role of teaching, that this is something that um, violates headship as established in the law at creation. And therefore, Paul makes it clear that God, who is a God of confusion, commands that in this regard, women keep silent in the church. So feel free to ask your questions. Call me, email me. And if there's something that really was confusing, I'll do my best to, to sort it out. But other than that, you work through it on your own. And if you want those notes, let me know, and I'll send them to you as an attachment. But certainly a difficult, difficult text. And I pray the Spirit of God gives us meekness in our approach to it, meekness toward one another and faithfulness as we seek to apply it. Our Heavenly Father, we do crave your blessing upon your word and all that has just been said. Uh, we seek to build up this body of Christ, this local expression of the church. And we know that the word of God is the means by which to bring this about. And so we pray that what has been spoken, your spirit might take and give us that understanding that we so desperately need. And help us, we pray, in submitting to the word, applying the word, and orienting our lives accordingly. We thank you that your word is sufficient. We thank you that it speaks to every conceivable situation. We thank you that it is profitable for, profitable for correcting and for reproving and rebuking and edifying and strengthening and comforting and challenging we pray that as we gather in a few moments to worship and your word is proclaimed that it might truly bear fruit in our lives, that you would be in our midst, that you would draw our minds and hearts heavenward as we again celebrate together the great gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.